Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're going to talk about gender as well as give some language examples to be more inclusive when talking about endometriosis within the endo community. This is an important topic because while endometriosis primarily affects people assigned female at birth, not everyone who has endometriosis identifies as a woman. Today we want to talk about why being inclusive matters as well as have a discussion on gender and gender identity in general. And today we have a special guest on our show. <gasps> oh my gosh, do we? We do, Lori Johansson. Yay! So Lori's here to talk with us today about the topics that Amy mentioned. Lori has many interests, including art, social justice, endometriosis awareness, and animals. <laughs> oh, <Me too. laughs> animals! They have a cat, so I just want to put out there that Lori has a cat. I'm outnumbered. <laughs> <laughs> Two, three cats, actually, to my one dog. <laughs> So Lori cares really deeply about our endo community as well as gender diverse communities, and we're so excited to have them here today. If any of you saw the Endometriosis Summit 2021, Lori actually was the one who did the live art event with Jenna Reich from the Endometriosis Coalition. Lori was the artist, and they performed a live art project by interpreting a very moving discussion that Jenna had with the audience in real time. And Lori made a digital art piece for the audience to view. Lori has also organized and supported panel discussions and events locally in their town to support other people with endometriosis and to increase awareness of this disease. They also helped organize an event with Sustainable Cycles, who tour the United States via bicycle, and provide knowledge around periods and offer free menstrual product samples. Wow, that's really cool. It is. I would love to be part of this group, Sustainable Cycles, although I'm not sure I could bike the United States. <laughs> I don't know if they want me to be on a bike. <laughs> I'm not a good representative. <laughs> so as part of Lori's position at a public university, they facilitate a community-engaged learning course that incorporates discussion around social identities, intersectionality, and counter-narratives. They are pursuing a degree in education and hope to be an elementary school teacher who integrates anti-bias and anti-racist practices in their curriculum. Lori's also committed to learning about social issues and their intersectionality, such as sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, ableism, and classism. Lori is dedicated to spreading awareness of endometriosis and creating supportive and inclusive spaces for those impacted by this disease. So let's all welcome Lori to our show for this important discussion on gender, endometriosis, and inclusivity. Hi, Lori. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Brittany and I are so happy to have you here, and we would love, in order to start, if you would go ahead and introduce yourself. 
Hi, Amy and Brittany. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So I am a queer, non-binary, dynamically disabled person with endometriosis and adenomyosis. I work at a college as a research and operations coordinator, but I am a teacher at heart, and I'm also an artist and musician. I'm really excited to have you here today, Lori, and I wish I could add some of those credentials to my list of who I am. Wow, excuse me. (laughs) That's really awesome. I first want to take a little moment, since you've been able to introduce yourself and also include the pronouns that we use. So everybody knows I'm Brittany, and my pronouns are she, they, and I'd love if both Amy and Lori can introduce themselves and their pronouns as well. I'm Lori Johansson, and my pronouns are she and they. I'm Amy, and my pronouns are she, her. So the reason we wanted to introduce ourselves with our pronouns today is because this episode is going to focus on inclusion within the endometriosis community. And part of that inclusion means including all people who have endometriosis. Pronouns are important because we all have them, whether they are she, him, her, they, or our name. We all have these as part of our identity. They make up who we are and they are a part of who we are as people. It's important for us to respect people's pronouns because it helps us to feel welcome in spaces, to feel seen, to feel like we are accepted there. And it's important to be using inclusive language, especially in our endometriosis community, so that all people with endometriosis feel welcome, know that they belong, and that they're supported here. So it's really helpful for cis people to also introduce themselves with their pronouns because that normalizes the habit in society. And cis person refers to a person whose gender identity aligns with those typically associated with the sex that they were assigned to them at birth. And you don't need to ask somebody specifically for their pronouns, because if you introduce yourself with your pronoun, they're more likely to also introduce themselves with their pronoun. And you also want to remember that some people don't always feel safe sharing their pronouns, so you never want to put pressure on anybody to share their pronouns. And it's really important to just respect people's privacy as well. Something that I've found really helpful is not to assume anyone's gender. I think sometimes based on the way a person looks, we may see that person and think, oh, that man over there or that woman over there. And, you know, it's funny because uh, I walk outside with my cat a lot and there's always people walking on the sidewalk and my cat tends to get nervous when there are other people around. So I often talk to my cat. And the person is typically in earshot and can hear me. And I'll say things like, it's okay, honey. It's just a man over there and he's walking his dog. And I realized that as I've been doing that, I'm assuming the person's gender based on the way they look. And I don't know that person and I don't know what their gender identity is. So what I've been doing now is saying, oh, look at that person over there. They're walking their dog and they're not going to bother you. And so I'll talk about a person in third person that I don't know, but using the word person, using the pronoun they and their, and something else I've been doing at work when I have to talk in third person about another client or someone that I don't know their gender identity, I'll just use their name. So if I write in the email like, oh, recently I spoke to Sue and Sue said, instead of saying recently I spoke to Sue and she said, or he said, or they said, because I don't know how the person identifies. So there've been little shifts that I've been trying to make in acknowledging and respecting people's gender identities, including the gender identities of people who I don't know how they identify. And at first it was kind of weird to point and be like, oh, that person, but now it's just become second nature. 
So I think that's a really great point. Something to remember is not assuming people's gender. So looking at me, you might think that I'm a woman, I'm very femme presenting, but I identify as non-binary, so that would be an incorrect assumption for me. So it is damaging for trans and non-binary people's mental health to what's referred to as misgendering. So if you call somebody by the wrong gender, that is referred to as misgendering. And that can really have dire mental health effects on the trans and non-binary community. But also it really affects cis people as well. For instance, it is also damaging to call a cis woman a man. So not everybody looks like a specific gender. You can't tell somebody's gender just by the way they look. So I think that's a really great practice to be in is to just use gender neutral language when you're referring to people until you know how they identify. Language is really dynamic and it's always changing constantly. And the way we speak now is not the same way we spoke 10 years ago, never mind 100 years ago. These practices can be really difficult to adjust to at first because they feel foreign, they feel strange, they feel weird to us because we're not used to them. But language shifts. This is not a new shift. Language has not been stagnant and all of a sudden is new. So it's okay for it to feel strange or to feel clunky or difficult when you first start practicing using neutral pronouns or not assuming one's gender. But over time, with practice, it becomes much easier and much more natural to use language like that. I think sometimes people don't realize that this language is actually already part of our lexicon and we have been using they or them in a singular sense to describe strangers for most of our language history. For instance, if we're in a store and we see somebody we don't know or we're looking for somebody we don't know, we may ask where they are. Say you're in the grocery store and you're wanting to pay for your groceries. If the cashier weren't there, you wouldn't say, where is he or where is she? If you've never seen the cashier in your life, you'd say, have you seen the cashier? Where are they? So this usage of they or them is already common practice in our language and in our culture. It's just now expanding to be more common in other elements when people are referring to themselves, not just when we're referring to strangers. So one thing that has come up for me a lot is people trying to challenge whether or not they is grammatically correct. And I have some good news that they is absolutely grammatically correct. It is in the Webster's Dictionary, and it was even the word of the year in 2019. So lookups for they increased by 313% in 2019 over the previous year. That is so fascinating. First of all, I didn't even know the dictionary kept track of its lookups of words and the statistics and the algorithms and like who access the dictionary for what word. Like, it's just kind of funny to think of whoever's running the online dictionary collecting that data, isn't it? <laughs> Who's the person looking through all the data and compiling that? I want to meet them. That sounds interesting. Who are they? Oh, you see what Britt and I just did yep. there? Who are they? <laughs> I think one of the reasons why the lookups for the word they increased exponentially in 2019 is for a lot of us, it feels like the concept of being non-binary or using they as a pronoun is brand new. I think for a lot of us, it kind of feels like it's coming out of nowhere, like it's coming out of left field and this is just this new 
trend or this new thing that people are doing that they've never done before in history. But the reality is that throughout history, there have always been gender nonconforming people. But unfortunately and sadly, they have had to hide themselves not to stand out. And the reason why is because of the violence, the arrest that they could face, the discrimination, even being called by society as mentally unwell or quote-unquote mentally insane, and then being taken off to a mental health institution because they don't identify with the common gender stereotypes of the time. And for me, that has been really powerful to think about How awful and scary and unjust must it be to think that just by being myself, just because I want to express on the outside the way that I feel on the inside, for example, let's say that I'm a person assigned male at birth, but I want to wear skirts. And back at the turn of the 19th century, people who dress differently than their gender stereotypes were often arrested. They were often brought to mental institutions. And that is just heartbreaking that people face this kind of discrimination just for being themselves. Because wearing a piece of clothing is not a crime. And wearing a piece of clothing doesn't mean that we're mentally unwell or mentally unsound. And while that may sound really drastic, and while we might think, wow, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, people weren't accepting, and that's just really extreme. The unfortunate truth is that even in today's age, in 2021, there is still so much violence and discrimination and even murder that happens today against people who are gender nonconforming. It's really awful to realize how much trauma the trans and non-binary community faces even today. It's also important to recognize that the groups of people that face the most violence are Black trans women. Something that Amy said also made me think about how even though trans and non-binary might be a new concept for you, maybe you grew up only thinking there's men and women, boys and girls, the concept of more than two genders has existed for millennia in various cultures. Amy, you brought up the 19th century, and I thought it was interesting because British colonizers in India at that time were trying to criminalize hedra. Hedra, if you're not familiar with, is a third gender recognized in India, and they have been recognized for 4,000 years. So the binary is actually younger than the concept of having more than two genders. And British colonization tried to criminalize being hedra and brought stigma for any identities outside of the binary. And this, unfortunately, is true for many different indigenous cultures globally. Yeah, third genders or middle genders are common in many indigenous cultures. I think specifically of Polynesian and Pacific Islander cultures, where these genders have been long recognized, far longer than, like you said, our binary has existed. In different cultures, there are lots of different genders that are recognized. Two-spirit is one that a lot of people are recognizing more and more that is in indigenous cultures that have been around longer and unfortunately also experienced colonization and with that brought lots of violence to the two-spirit community. 
I really like that the acronym that many of the queer community use to describe ourselves and list our identities includes now 2S or 2SPIRIT, the acronym being LGBTQIA2S+. So that 2SPIRIT isn't included only under the trans umbrella, but is named on its own in its own identity within that acronym. I think it is really nice that society is beginning to recognize different gender identities and that they're bringing voice and they're bringing inclusion and specifically naming different gender identities because I honestly cannot even begin to fathom or imagine what it must have been like and what it must still be like for many people to have your personhood, your your identity, the person that you are, your core being to be considered invalid, you know, to not be seen, to be told that that's not quote unquote normal, to be told that you have to fit into a certain box that society says that you have to fit into. And I just, I cannot imagine the trauma, the persecution, the discrimination. And I'm just so happy that society is starting to catch up And I know that we have such a long, long way to go, but I'm really glad that these conversations are happening among more people and more commonly than before, than in all throughout history. I think that's also why these conversations are so important, because if you don't think about them, say you're cisgender and you don't understand why gender is a big deal, these conversations are the way we're going to create a safer society for everyone, including gender non-conforming individuals. We really do have the opportunity to create a culture and society that's accepting of people exactly for who they are. And without having these conversations, change won't happen and the status quo will remain the same. So I thank both of you for having me on this show and for recognizing how important this conversation is, especially it's an important conversation in all realms, but in the endometriosis community, it's especially important because it is such a gendered conversation usually. And that can be really exclusive for people. And that exclusion is really harmful. So as we continue on in our interview, I do want for us to lay the groundwork about what sex and gender is. We want to talk a little bit about science and a little bit about social construct and what these concepts mean and clear up perhaps some misconceptions about sex and gender and also address how many genders there are, what sex truly is and how it is different from gender. So Lori. Could you tell us what is gender? In its simplest form, gender is a social construct that we make. Oftentimes, people grow up thinking it's boys and girls. There are other genders besides just men and women. And oftentimes, when people think of men and women, they're actually thinking of cis men and cis women. And there's also trans men and trans women. But I would like to note that trans women are women and trans men are men. There are also gender non-conforming people, and there are lots of different ways to identify as for your gender. Sometimes I ask myself, what does it even mean to be a woman? You know, I identify as a woman, and this might be because I grew up being socialized as a woman. Also, you know, I'm 37 years old, so When I was growing up, the only thing that I really knew was I'm a girl, I'm a woman, and that's 
who I am. That's how I've been socialized. I've never really given a lot of thought to what my gender could be, but I've definitely heard my whole life that I don't act girly, that I'm not a typical woman. I've had people tell me that the way that I scratch my face is masculine. I've had boyfriends tell me that I emasculate them. I've had coworkers tell me that I'm too bossy. I'm too domineering. I'm too aggressive. And I want to say, who would say that about me? Who? Who? Wouldn't have no idea who that could be. <laughs> but my whole life, I've been told things like, I'm a tomboy, or I don't fit in, or I'm not dainty enough. And so it's funny because I feel like growing up, we are pushed. Oftentimes, we are pushed into these categories. Well, Amy was assigned female at birth, so she's a woman. But then somehow I've not been womanly enough in so many aspects of my life. And it's just really got me thinking, like, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? And I think if we think about it, like from an anthropological viewpoint, so I actually studied anthropology, which I know people say is like the worst major ever to study and you can't get a job. I did get a job. Okay. It doesn't pay a lot, but I am employed. So Shame on all of those magazines say you shouldn't study anthropology because it's really fascinating. And I certainly learned a lot about myself and my life and the way that I view myself. But I've come to realize that so much of what we learn comes from our culture. So our culture has assigned a gender to inanimate objects. Our culture has assigned a gender to clothes, to a way of acting. Our culture has said that men wear pants, but they don't wear dresses. Men don't paint their fingernails. Women wear high heels. Women wear the color pink. Men don't show their emotions and men don't cry. And men are strong physically. And women are demure and they don't argue and they definitely don't sit with their legs open. That's what I've been told so many times. Close your legs. It's not ladylike. If I want to sit my legs open, I will. Not with a skirt on. I just want to be clear, not like showing my underwear. But like if I'm in pants, why can't I open my legs? Oh, because that's manly. Oh, and you have to speak a certain way. To Like what the heck is that about? How come I can't just be myself? And how come I keep getting told that I'm not feminine enough? I'm not womanly enough. And so even for me as a person who I'm a cis woman and my gender identity matches the sex that I was assigned at birth. I still sometimes haven't felt like I fit in this category that society has put me in. I think, Amy, that that's actually what caused me to question my gender identity and kind of have that thought within myself of how do I actually identify? I've been told many of the same things you have. I've been called a tomboy my whole life, told that my behaviors and my characteristics are uncharacteristic for a woman and that I don't fit into what it's like to be a woman. So through a lot of questioning and trying to learn about gender and understand how society creates this, and it was very interesting for me to learn how different cultures can have the same two genders, man and woman. However, the assignation or characteristics or behaviors that are assigned to those two genders can vary wildly just between two cultures alone. So what is considered to be manly or masculine in one culture can be very different than that consideration in another, which really just proves how completely fabricated gender is because it's all up to society. So when people say that men are becoming less manly or men are becoming less masculine or women are becoming more manly or more masculine, 
that's not really actually real because all of these assignments are completely made up by society. So when I really learned that and understood what that meant, it caused me to have my own journey of understanding how I relate to gender and how I understand gender. And I think that that's something that a lot of people haven't really thought about. And the people that have known innately their whole lives that they don't identify with the gender that correlates to the sex they were assigned at birth. I think that because this conversation is happening more and more, folks like that are having more of their voices uplifted and amplified, which can cause others like us who maybe never considered it because we were safe and had the privilege to not have to consider it at that time, are now able to think about it and learn about what gender means and learn about what that means for us as people and as our own identities. And I think that that's a really wonderful aspect to come out of this larger conversation is that many people are realizing for the first time that the reason that they felt they never fit into what it was like to be a man or a woman is because maybe they're not. And that's been a really great door to have been opened for a lot of people. I do want to add to what I said before about saying that gender is a social construct and that certain behaviors are considered to be of one gender or another, when really they're just human behaviors. Inanimate objects like toys or clothes are considered to be one gender or another. We all know, quote unquote, we all know society has taught us that trucks are for boys, not for girls. Girls play with dolls. Girls wear dresses and boys wear pants. Girls wear pink and boys wear blue. So I think our whole lives, society and culture has told us what's right and what's wrong. That when we do a certain thing, it aligns with this gender or this other gender. But really what we do is just human. Any person can like any color. Any person should be able to wear any clothing style that they want without being told that, you know, if a person assigned male at birth, if they want to wear eyeshadow and have long hair and wear a dress, they shouldn't be discriminated against or spat on when they go out in public or insulted. They shouldn't feel unsafe for their lives by just enacting inhuman behavior. It's society that has said XYZ ABC aligns with this gender and QRSDEF aligns with this other gender. And I certainly think that we can feel drawn to a certain gender. Many of us do know our gender and we know whether we're cisgender or transgender or non-binary or gender fluid. Many of us know how we identify. Many of us are figuring out how we identify and all of that is okay. So while gender is a social construct, we can also feel drawn to a gender and that is perfectly valid and real. So our experience of identifying as a man or as a woman or as non-binary, all of that is real. So just because gender is a social construct doesn't mean that we can't identify as a, a certain way. It doesn't mean that what we feel is invalid. So I just really hope that as we talk about this further, it's just oftentimes we hear that being non-binary or being trans is not valid, but the truth is all of the genders are valid. We can identify in any way that we want. And what is made up by society is not the way that we identify and not the way that we feel, but the fact that society tells us that we have to fit in a certain box. And if we don't, that that is quote unquote wrong and quote unquote abnormal and quote unquote not acceptable. 
And that is what is made up the fact that we have to fit in these boxes. Those boxes are made up and we should be able to dress and speak and act in the way that we want, of course, as long as we're not hurting other people. So exactly like what Amy was just saying, it's interesting that people think genders outside of the gender binary are made up, but then don't consider their own gender as a cis person as made up. And even though because gender is a social construct, it is technically made up, like what Amy was saying, it is very real in society and gender discrimination has very real and very dangerous consequences. Society teaches us that certain behaviors align with one gender and society teaches us what's right and wrong with gender. But in reality, there is no right and wrong. I think that's something that I've kind of held as a personal truth throughout my journey through understanding my own gender identity is that there isn't a wrong way to experience a gender and there isn't a wrong way to experience no gender. And that if gender is true for you, that it is real and it is your truth. And if gender does not feel comfortable or true for you, then that is also real in your truth. So as Amy said, it's the constructs and attributes that we assign to specific genders that are not real. But genders themselves can be our truth. And if they're our truth, then they are real, then they are valid. Simply because assignments around gender and things like clothing or makeup or behaviors have been assigned to certain genders, those are not true. But the genders themselves are real and they are valid. And we all feel some kind of draw to a specific gender or to no gender at all. One other note about gender roles. So for me growing up, I grew up as a little girl and then as a woman and then came out about being non-binary through my exploration of gender and learning more about those roles. But one thing that I have also realized is there are some cultures that have very strong gender roles, but also they have more fluid concepts of what gender is. So if there are gender roles that are for feminine people and gender roles for masculine people, even if you're not assigned female at birth, you can also fall into the feminine role. And a lot of times, because it is fluid, you don't necessarily need to be one gender or identify as one gender, but that can change throughout your life. And that was the case for me. Previously, I identified as a woman, and now I identify as being non-binary. And I also want to make the note that gender isn't necessarily bad or should go away. That's not what we're trying to say at all. But it could be more inclusive and celebratory when people are empowered to determine their own genders and are not forced into the boxes that society has given us. I think it's just really important that we all respect each other as human beings. and so. If I meet a person and that person, for example, tells me that they're non-binary and that their pronouns are they, them, then I should respect them. If I meet a person who is a cis male and they tell me that they're a cis male and their pronouns are he and him, then I should respect that. I think ultimately what it comes down to is, you know, as human beings, we just want to feel connected to other human beings. We want to feel a sense of decency. We want to feel safety. We want to feel comfort. We want to feel included. And we want to feel seen. And I think for such a long time, 
there's been so much invalidation around the way that people identify and gender nonconforming people. And I think it's just really important that if a person identifies as non-binary or two-spirit or agender or gender fluid or cis male or any of the different diverse ways a person can identify, I think it's just really important for us as a society to welcome that person, to include that person. Because ultimately, we're all human beings. We're all on this earth trying to live a good life, which is really hard. It's, it's really hard to be a human being. It is exhausting. Oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted all the time. And there's so much struggle. And how much more do we add to another person's struggle and exhaustion on this earth by invalidating them and telling them that the way that they identify the core of their being is just not correct? Who am I? Who are we to say to another person, no, you were assigned female at birth and you're a woman. And if you identify in a different way, then that's unacceptable. Really what's unacceptable is for us to tell another person that what they feel is unacceptable. So I think it just comes down to having compassion, having empathy, having understanding, and having these conversations so that it can become more normalized, that our use of pronouns in everyday language can become more normalized. People can feel safe enough to come out about their gender identity. And so more people can have a voice that are gender nonconforming. And I think ultimately all of that is going to make for a better society. For all of us, including people who are a cis person, like a cis man and cis woman. I really enjoyed this discussion that we had around gender and how important it is to people and how important it is to all of us and to us as a society. And I think hopefully now we understand that gender is fluid and gender can be experienced in so many different ways by all the different wonderful humans on this planet. And that means that there is really no wrong or right way to experience gender, which means there is no limit to how many genders there are or the way that we experience our gender. So something we want to talk about now is the difference between gender and sex, because gender and sex are two different things. And so let's spend a little bit of time understanding what sex is, defining sex, and then talking about the differences between sex and gender. Sex is something that we are assigned at birth, usually by the doctor and based on the genitals and chromosomes that we have. These sexes are typically male or female. When a person's sex and reproductive organs, hormones, and or their chromosomes don't fit the typical definitions of male or female, they may be given the sex of intersex. Gender is a social and legal status. And as we spoke about already, it's more about how a person is expected to act, dress, talk, behave, and even what they're expected to like, such as dolls or action figures, pink or blue, for example, based on their gender. Gender roles vary from culture to culture. Our gender identity is how we feel individually as people and how we express our gender and ourselves in the way that we act, dress, talk, and behave. There's no wrong way to have a gender identity. Whichever way that we feel is valid. So sex and gender are different. They're very different. Sex is based on sexual and reproductive anatomy the person has, whereas gender is all about cultural norms and societal expectations for people with that particular anatomy. 
And this is really important for this conversation because a lot of times sex is used against trans and non-binary people. Some people use it as a way to invalidate people's gender and say that sex is the only determining factor for what your gender is. When we now know that that's not true and that even with sex, it isn't just males and females. There are people that are born intersex. So I think it's a really important distinction to make that even sex is not as binary as we've been taught growing up. I think what's really important to understand and what we've kind of learned throughout the course of learning to understand sex and gender better is that while our biology certainly does dictate our internal organs, our hormones, etc., biology doesn't actually dictate how we feel and how we behave and how we identify. Some people happen to identify with the gender that society has decided correlates with the sex they're assigned at birth, and some do not. So what this means is that our sex that we're assigned when we're born does not dictate our gender that there are many aspects and facets to our experience as people that can help shape how we identify what our gender is. Sex and gender are a similar conversation, but they are not the same thing because they talk about two different things. Sex talks about biology and anatomy and chromosomes, while gender talks about our socializing and how we fit into society and how we identify and relate to those around us as well as ourselves. So it is important to know that these are conversations that happen very closely together or sometimes at the same time, but they are two different things and one does not dictate the other. Lori, I'd love to ask you, how did you know that you were non-binary? Because you're a person who was assigned female as birth. And as you've said, You were socialized as a girl and then later as a woman. So I'm just wondering, how did you know that you identified as non-binary? So it was actually a more recent realization for me, I think. The more I understood the term, the more I connected with it. I have lots of trans and non-binary friends who would talk to me about it. A little background. So for more than 30 years of my life, I identified as a woman purely because I was AFAB or assigned female at birth, and that was just what everybody called me immediately, right? And it took me a really long time to understand that I can actually take ownership of what my gender is, even if I was assigned female at birth. And growing up, I was taught that there are boys and there are girls and nothing else, and that always felt really limiting to me. And then as I gained life experience, I learned that gender is much more of a spectrum, and that always felt very freeing to me once I had that realization. When I learned about people being intersex in middle school, I was really sad that there were only boys and girls bathrooms and sports teams. That was the first thing that I sort of thought of, is how they were excluded. And then growing up, whenever I was put with the women or ladies, like at social gatherings or weddings or what have you, I always sort of felt a little bit out of place. Even though everybody was wonderful and the women were all lovely, I just sort of, I don't know, something about it just didn't feel quite right for me to be sort of segregated from the men and now I'm with the women. That always just felt like a little bit uncomfortable for me. 
whenever people would call me a lady, I would always sort of just make a joke about it. Like, I'm no lady or there's no lady here. Or I would, you know, I would always just kind of like laugh it off or brush it off or whatever it was. I realized I just didn't identify with that. And then people would tell me that, you know, I seem like one of the guys. I think one of you mentioned, Amy, that you've been called a tomboy or, you know, all these different things, like I'm not girly. But what I realized is I just wanted to be myself and that femininity and masculinity never really resonated with me because even though I didn't feel like one of the girls or the ladies, I also didn't feel like one of the guys, which wasn't really an issue for me, but it was just in the back of my head. I Like people would say things and it just sort of didn't resonate, didn't make any sense to me personally. And then finally, when I learned about the impact that colonization had, on genders globally, that was really what made me feel empowered to honor my non-binary self. So for me, part of being non-binary is also a rejection of that colonization of gender and the binary that was forced upon peoples around the world. And I also want to recognize that gender is fluid, so it can also change. I'm very open to my identity changing throughout my life as it already has. And I also want to point out, this is my personal journey, but remember that people identify as different genders for all sorts of reasons. For some people, it's because they're really drawn to a certain gender or really identify as that gender. And then for others, it's really that they don't identify with a specific gender. Well, first, thank you, Lori, for sharing your experience with us and sharing how you realized that you were non-binary because I think that hearing different people's experiences can help us because as I've said, for me, sometimes I wonder like, what does it feel like to be a woman? And I don't particularly feel like a woman, but I also know that I definitely don't identify as a man. And then when I hear the term non-binary, like I don't really feel drawn to that either. So I think for me, I'm perfectly comfortable being a cis woman and identifying as a woman, even though I'm not really sure what being a woman means, because I reject the idea that society has imposed on us that being a woman means I have to be very feminine, or I have to be demure and dainty and never get angry. I reject these ideas that society has imposed on me to define Define what a lady is and what a woman is. But I do like the idea of being a woman. And I think when you were talking about your experience of being non binary and how, when you were with the women in weddings or times of your life when it was kind of separated off what's considered the men and the women, you know, I remember when I was living in Achuar territory. So I had the privilege and the honor for living for one year in Atchua territory. They're an indigenous culture that is on the border of Ecuador and Peru. And I was able to live there when they invited me to volunteer as a teacher at their school. What I saw living there was that gender roles within their society, within their culture were very prominent. And I was always grouped with the females because I am a person assigned female at birth. And I really liked that. I actually really liked being with the women. I really liked the idea that together as women, we talked about our experiences or that we shared certain experiences together that the women experience in the tribal community, like gardening together or being with the children. And I really liked that. And I felt really comfortable. 
And it may also be because for a long time, I, I just didn't have a lot of like social support in general growing up and within my friends, as we all know, it's, it's really hard socially when you have endometriosis, it can be really hard with your friend groups. It can be really hard with your family. So I've always felt pretty lonely, pretty isolated. And there was this year in my life when I just felt really like I belong. And I love the fact that we were all supporting each other through hardships that many people assigned female at birth go through, like pregnancies and other experiences that people assigned female at birth have. So for me, I felt really included among this group of women, and I felt like it was exactly where I belong. So it's interesting because I don't feel like a woman, like I don't know what it innately means to be a woman, but I do feel very comfortable among women. And I do feel like that is where I belong. So I think it's important to hear these different experiences because I think many of us are exploring our gender identities and it can be really hard to separate ourselves from what society taught us and find the feelings that we have inside of us and figure out what gender means to us and what identity means to us. And I also want to say, Lori, that you strike me as a very empathetic and caring young person because when you said that you learned about intersex people in middle school and the first thing you thought about was the bathroom I just imagined myself at middle school and I was so I had a hard time growing up so I was not able to really I think think about anyone but myself for a long period of my life and I just think that I never would have had those thoughts and for you at such a young age to have such empathy and caring compassion towards other human beings that are in a completely different situation than you are. I just really want to commend you and say that. I think it's really lovely that at such a young age, you were able to see outside of just your own experience. And I imagine that has really shaped you growing up and that has helped you have these really wonderful qualities that you have today of being so caring and empathetic and compassionate towards other human beings. Amy, I'm really glad that you had that experience. I know that can be really powerful. And I do want to mention that I also have had sort of a similar experience where I've been parts of different women's empowerment groups throughout the years. Because I have been socialized as a woman and have had similar experiences as the women at those groups, it has been really meaningful for me to be involved in them as well. It really provides space to explore how we live in society. And because there is so much discrimination against different members of society based on gender, it is important to have support within those groups. I always appreciate when groups of women doing women's empowerment groups or support groups or things like that include people who don't identify as women as well. I've been a part of groups an acronym that is commonly used is WTFNB, which is Women, Trans, Femme, Non-Binary. So that's more inclusive, but still recognizing that this group is getting together because they have been affected by their identity that is not cis men. I think it's powerful when people that have similar life experiences can get together and really support one another. So Amy, I think you really spoke to that and how powerful that can be. I feel safe and empowered in groups of women, but I feel incredibly validated, seen, and valued when those groups also intentionally recognize and include me as a non-binary person. And a lot of that has to do with language and things like that. 
I want to re-highlight something Lori just said that is probably going to stick with me for a long time. They said that while they feel safe and empowered in groups of women, they feel validated, seen, and valued when there is intentionality behind including their identity as a non-binary person. So why are we having this conversation? Why are we talking about this on an endometriosis podcast? (laughs) What are we doing here? Why are we chatting about gender and sex today? Many of us in the endometriosis community have similar experiences. That's what we bond together with. We have this whole podcast talking about our shared experiences, our shared traumas, our shared struggles, and our shared triumphs. But one thing we don't all share is the same gender. And talking about how many of us have similar experiences of having endometriosis and navigating the medical world and navigating ourselves. Language is very important and inclusion, intentional inclusion is very important because if we only ever address endometriosis as being a disease that only affects women, what happens is we exclude a population of people who are not women. And something that we, as people who are in this community and have endometriosis, we know what it's like to be excluded, to be left out, to be forgotten, dismissed, discouraged, gaslit. And the last thing that we would want to ever do to other people in our own community with similar experiences to us is pass that pain and trauma on to them. So that's why we're here today. That's why we want to talk about inclusive language and how to be intentional about making sure we're including all folks with endometriosis in our conversation. Because while we all have similar experiences, our identities like gender, race, sexual orientation, all of these have other facets that influence the experience we have as people with this disease. So we want to talk a little bit about language and how we can be more inclusive in this community and how we can make sure that we're being intentional and including all of the endo family rather than just part of it. I think it's really important what you said, Brittany, about being intentional in including people, being intentional in our language. I know that for me, talking often about endometriosis, I feel like all I ever talk about is endometriosis, even in my personal life. So it's something that I was doing that I thought was being inclusive, but I later learned that that was not the most inclusive way of addressing all the people in our community was I was using the word women in our materials, like on our website and in my Instagram posts and spelling the word women with an X. And originally I'd understood that saying the word women with an X was a way of talking about people assigned female at birth and including people who are assigned female at birth, but who do not identify as women. And then lovely Lori here was so kind enough to point out to me that it would be much better instead of using the word woman with an X to say exactly what I mean and to be really intentional with my language. So if I mean women, then I should just say women, the actual word women, spelling it with W-O-M-E-N and not using the X. If I meant people assigned female at birth, which was actually what I meant in those cases when I was using women with the next, then I should go ahead and say people assigned female at birth. If I meant women and non-binary people, I should say that. If I meant non-cis men, I should specifically say that. If I meant all people, then I should say all people. And for me, that's been really helpful. Every time I 
try to formulate a sentence that's involving groups of people, especially around endometriosis, is to try to more carefully think about the message that I'm conveying and to choose my language appropriately to make sure that everyone feels included and heard and that no one feels invalidated. Now, it's not to say I can't make a mistake and I can't use the wrong language, which I know that I have. And sometimes I fumble over what language to use and inadvertently I don't use the correct language. But I think it's really important to do our best to be intentional about the language that we're using. So throughout this podcast, you may have heard us refer to AFAB or assigned female at birth. So I can talk just a little bit about what we actually mean by that. People that are AFAB have been assigned female at birth. So that's the acronym AFAB. And this can be more inclusive for when we're talking about things like endometriosis. Because trans men may be AFAB but identify as trans men. Also, for instance, for me, I was assigned female at birth, but I identify as non-binary, so it also includes me. Although some people who are not AFAB rarely have endometriosis, I believe the majority of the people that have endometriosis are assigned female at birth. One of the statistics that we see a lot that is sort of a rally cry or a call to action is one in 10 women. I think that can be very empowering for people to have that statistic on hand. But unfortunately, one in 10 women can be exclusive of those that don't identify as women but still have endometriosis. Because of this, if you say one in 10 people assigned female at birth or AFAB, This is much more inclusive of those that don't identify as women, but still have endometriosis. Laurie, I'd love to ask you, when we're writing, for example, 1 in 10, do I write 1 in 10 AFAB? AFAB is assigned female at birth. So where does the word people come in? Like, do I just say 1 in 10 AFAB? If I was talking, I could say 1 in 10 people assigned female at birth. Could I also just say 1 in 10 AFAB? I'm a little confused about if I like put the statistic on an Instagram post, would I put like one in 10 and then just put AFAB or do I need to put like one in 10 people AFAB have endometriosis? Like kind of how do I use AFAB? So I have seen it used both ways. For instance, among trans and non-binary people, often you'll hear it used without people. So when I'm referring to myself, I say that I'm AFAB, which would be I'm assigned female at birth, or some people say I am an AFAB, so I am an assigned female at birth. So it's not quite specific to how grammatically it would be used. AFAB is sort of how lots of people identify. So I think for the one in 10 statistic... I have seen more often people say one in 10 people AFAB, just to be very clear about it. Some other language to keep in mind around usage, particularly with the word woman or women, is if the sex or gender doesn't matter in the conversation you're having, then we should be using terms like people. For instance, there are 200 million people with endometriosis. Some other things to think about are also the name women's health. 
this does not apply if all people who fall under these health umbrellas are not women. Other alternatives can be things like menstrual health or reproductive health. Another one to keep in mind is if we're talking about people who experience periods and who currently have periods, we could use the term like menstruators or people with a uterus. However, if we're talking about all people who experience endometriosis or who experience reproductive health issues, then we shouldn't say menstruators as not all people with those experiences may currently menstruate or may currently have a uterus. So all of these language shifts are things to think about when we think about our community that may include people that don't have the same exact experience or identity, anatomy, or organs that we do. Another term that we see a lot in the endo community is endo-sisters, where with this one, I can completely understand why we would like to use endo-sisters because it's that sisterhood, it's that getting together, and we don't want to get rid of that feeling of support and connection that a lot of people use endo-sisters for. But there are some alternatives that I think have that camaraderie without being exclusive for some people. So for instance, you could say endo family instead of endo sisters. I've also seen endo siblings. That's another one. Endo warriors. That one is probably the most common one I've seen. Endo vigils. Then there's also endo buddies. And then my personal favorite one is friendos because I think it's cute and it's kind of punny. So just really thinking about that. So whenever you use endo sisters, consider one of these other terms that sort of have the same idea behind them, but they're more inclusive for the whole community so that we can all feel welcome. I love that we're learning all these new terms that we can use around endometriosis because certainly we talk about endometriosis all the time while Brittany and I do. And I'm sure many of us in the community talk about endo pretty much constantly because it's constantly ruining our lives or just being part of our lives. (laughs) But sometimes I get really nervous about using the wrong term. My self-critic is really strong inside of me. I feel a lot of guilt. I I just get really scared sometimes to know what to say. And sometimes that can prevent me from saying something at all because I'm just not sure if I'm going to get it correct. So do you have any advice for people like me, just that we want to be inclusive, but it can feel really intimidating because we're not so well-versed in what language to use? I think that's a really common feeling when people are learning about new things, especially around diversity and inclusion in general. And I would say a good place to start is just honoring where you are and giving yourself grace as you learn. And also remembering that some things, such as some language, isn't necessarily bad, but sometimes there are better ways to communicate. And there are ways that we can all improve the way we communicate with other people. For instance, with language, so if you do end up misgendering someone, which is calling someone by the wrong gender or use the wrong pronoun for them, him or her, then one piece of advice is to just thank that person for correcting you and then use the correct term in front of them. So you don't need to overly apologize and make a big deal about it because sometimes that can be uncomfortable for the other person. So if you're in a conversation with somebody, you misgender them, they correct you, 
it would be better for you to say thank you so much for letting me know your pronoun or your gender or whatever it is that they expressed with you and then use it in front of them repeat whatever you said wrong but in the right way instead of saying like oh my god i'm so sorry i'm learning about gender identities and i'm trying really hard and i'm reading books and i hope you're okay and i'm just so so sorry like making a really big deal about it can be really uncomfortable for somebody especially if they might be new to this gender identity as well so this is new for you but it could also be a little bit newer for them too so you want to make sure that they also feel comfortable so thank them and then continue the conversation so i think it is important to really honor where you are with learning about diversity and inclusion and like i said to give yourself that grace to learn Because getting stuck in guilt is not going to help you and it is not going to help whoever you are talking to or about. So instead, understand that you will make mistakes, you will be corrected, and as long as you learn those lessons and carry them with you, it will be okay. But also realize that some people might get mad at you if you misgender them. Lots of people in the LGBTQIA2S plus community have faced trauma and they have every right to be defensive, angry, or scared. It is not their job to forgive you for your mistakes, but it is your responsibility to forgive yourself and remember your lessons and to always make an effort to do better. The best way to get better with everything that we're talking about is through practicing. So you can practice with a friend, you can practice in the mirror, just make sure that you're doing the work to really try to be more inclusive, If you make a mistake, make sure that you correct it and apologize for it. If it's something that has caused somebody harm, apologize for it and make sure that you're actually learning the lesson from that so that you don't make the same mistake in the future. For me, it's been a really fine line between taking responsibility for the way that I speak and interact in this world because ultimately, as you were saying, the things that I say can impact other people. The things that I say can contribute to people's trauma. The things that I say can hurt other people. Or conversely, the things that I say can help people feel included and seen and validated. So for me, it's this fine line between taking responsibility for how I interact in the world with inclusivity, but then not falling over the line into a place of where the self-critic lives My self-critic is just so strong and just loves to berate me. And I can feel so much guilt when I say something incorrectly and I can fall into this abyss of being really angry at myself and feeling really bad and guilty and beating myself up. And that additionally is, it doesn't help me to grow. All that really does is paralyze me with fear and make me too afraid to keep trying. So for me, it's been this really fine line between doing my best and continuing to learn so that I can continue to get better and holding myself accountable, but also giving myself grace and forgiving myself for the mistakes that I've made. So I think it's the really fine balance to walk. But as we continue practicing, like you said, we get better. And the better we get, the more confident we get. And I really like what you said about just being where we are and maybe where we are right now is just hearing this episode and sitting with this information and letting it all sink in and making a simple change from saying, 
women with endometriosis to people with endometriosis. And sometimes these changes that can feel really small can actually be the ones that are really impactful in people's lives. So I really like Maya Angelou's quote, which I think is very applicable here, is do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So that goes again to honoring where you are, understand that you're learning. And I also want to say that even though these can be really hard conversations and really new for some people, it can also be a place for joy and celebration. If you do this work in a way where you realize that you're creating a better future, especially with endometriosis, I feel like a lot of us can feel alone. A lot of us can feel like we don't have the support that we need. So by having these conversations, by doing the hard work of changing the language that we use to be more inclusive, we are making a more supportive community for everybody. And in all the work that I do around discrimination, I always try to focus on what the future is that we're building towards so that instead of feeling guilty about the past, we can be excited for the future. So why is this important? Why is it important to have this conversation? Why is it important to be mindful? This is important because we in this community know what it feels like to be excluded. Many of us are marginalized and nearly all of us know what it's like to experience dismissal and being constantly invalidated. That's why this is important because just as we would like the effort to be made to be included, seen, and validated by the medical community, So should we also strive to include, see, and validate all of the people in our endometriosis community? We are all welcome here because we all need support. All really means all. And it's imperative for every single one of us that we always keep this in mind as we communicate with each other and as we support each other and as we grow our community. There are some really wonderful resources out there as well. Les from Endoqueer and the patient advocate and social activist B. Lynn are just two of very many people on Instagram that you can follow that have really educational and supportive posts. Amy will put those recommendations in the show notes for you. So definitely check those out. Definitely support people. And I am really excited for you to just keep learning about different identities and different gender diversity and being on this journey. So before we end this episode today, first, we just want to thank you so much, Lori, for coming on the podcast, for making time for us, for sharing all of your knowledge with us. I've recently been getting to know Lori, and we have had a lot of conversations around gender identity and language. And Lori, You have been so instrumental to helping me change my language, to be more inclusive, to really understand the bigger concepts and the bigger picture and the background knowledge. And I'm just so glad that you could come on the show today. Brittany and I really, really appreciate you making time for us and being here. And I'm sure that all the listeners do as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for your recommendations about what to substitute the word endosisters for. And we want to leave all of you today with the question, what inclusive term do you like best? Do you like endo family, endo warriors, endo vigils, endo buddies? 
friendos. We'd love to know which term do you like best? What, when you hear, makes you feel connected with everyone in our community, brings you joy, brings a smile to your face? I actually really like endo buddies. I think that's really cute. Oh, and I like endo siblings as well. And I like endo family. Oh my God, I like them all. Actually, I think I like most endo family because I think in my own case, I have felt so alone and unsupported just due to my own personal situation. It's been really hard to get support for this illness. And I just love the idea that across the world, I have an endo family that is 200 million people strong. It's so powerful to know that we're all in this together. That is so beautiful. And that has made such an impact in my life is meeting all of the wonderful people that I have met through this community, through the podcast, through Instagram, through having this awful disease called endometriosis. This community is so invaluable to so many of us. And I think we've all benefited in some way from this community. And for me, that really drives home the importance of being inclusive in this community because the last thing that I would want to do is feel connected with so many people, but then in my search to be connected with others, inadvertently be using language like endo sisters or women with endo that's actually excluding other people. For me, finding this community has been probably one of the most important events in my life. And I'm not exaggerating. It has been so lovely to meet people who are going through the exact same thing that I'm going through. It has absolutely been crucial to my mental health. And I would say also to my physical health, to figuring out how to navigate this journey physically, treatment, diet, like we have all helped each other so much. You have all helped me so much. And I think that's why I want to really bring this episode today is to say to everyone listening and to everyone in this community, you are all important and you all matter and we see you. And I think the more we have this conversation, the more that all of us will realize how important it is to include all of each other in this lifelong journey of living with this horrible disease. Thank you both so much for having me on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.